Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis about the Tower of Babel and its two main purposes that man had for it, to make a name for themselves and to not be scattered. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's some highlights from this week's messages. Because when they were looking for this place, it was in defiance to God. It was to say, no, I'm not going to go do what you said to do. We're going to stay together. And that's why they were afraid that God would scatter them. They didn't need God. They weren't going to give any credit to God because for them, they wanted to defy God's order to sharats, to go out and scatter. And they felt frustrated and they faced this prospect like it was a challenge. They weren't going to succeed. And Now here's Tom Cantor as we conclude our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday expository study from the book of Genesis. So here they discovered this great discovery, great celebration, not just for the bricks, but of the achievement of man. You can't believe how elated the whole community is. They've overcome a great obstacle. Eh? Nothing was going to stand in their way. Well, the scientists had a second problem, though, because when they stacked the ceramic blocks on top of each other, they noticed that it didn't take but a little bit of movement, as then the earth moving, and they cracked and broke. So that was another problem. Well, that doesn't matter. Scientists, they came up with the next solution, which was the flexible mortar that went between, see? And that's what they talk about here when they talk about the slime have they for mortar. So one scientist found this slime in the valley, and, and that was perfect. So, again, they said one to another, see, our scientists have, have prevailed. We've done it. We had an obstacle, given time. We discovered a solution. We did it all without God. It was a great day for them because in overcoming the problem of no stones to build the tower, they were saying we're just beginning on our road of overcoming all the obstacles. We're building a new society. We're going to force God into a little box called religion. And those who want to, they can go to their houses of worship. And you can hear this account. You can hear this voice today. Is it saying, you know, our scientists have prevailed. They did it without praying to God. By science, we've succeeded in every problem. It just takes time. We conquered space. Look at polio. We had that problem. We, we did it. Next, cancer. We're forming this brave new world without God. Scientists have proven that God didn't create the world. Scientists have proven everything came from into being on its own over billions of years. So the scientists are working. That's what they're doing. I mean... John Lennon's song was, you know, they could have written that song. You know, back then, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. No uh, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for just today. That's what they were doing. Now, it's their new invention. They got the ceramic bricks. They got the mortar. Great encouragement. A dream is beginning to become a reality. And they could see it now. A big, beautiful, prosperous satisfying city without God. And right in the middle of their city without God, they dreamed of this big, huge, tall tower, a monument to man's achievements. The tower was very important for them. First, the goal of the construction. It says there, you notice, whose top may reach unto heaven. That tower had to reach right into heaven. As that tower reached into heaven, it would be symbolic of man having no limitations. If God's in heaven, then we'll go there. It's just like Satan said in Isaiah 14, 13, when he said, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit and so forth. 
So now notice in verse 4 that they had a twofold purpose for this tower. First, let us make a name. They, they had a name. They were the people of God. They were a man, God's creation. They didn't like that name. So they wanted names that didn't refer to God. Now, to say that, to make a name, has a very specific meaning in Scripture. To make a name. Here's where a couple of verses. In Isaiah 63, 12, it says that God led them by the hand, right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name. See, God makes a name. Jeremiah 32.20 says, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day and in Israel, among other men, and said, and has made thee a name as it is this day. See, so to make a name means to establish glory because of something that's done. So to make a name, that's reserved for God only. And, then, and he's the all-glorious one. He's the one that does it all. So in trying to make a name, they're trying to establish glory for themselves from what they did. So that's why these bricks and so forth are very important. By making a name, they, they could talk about what they did. You know, they probably had a museum there. And so, <laughs> and so that's very interesting. They want to talk about themselves. That's making a name. Talk about themselves. By contrast... We don't talk about ourselves. We talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't talk about what man has done. We talk about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. That's described to us in the last verse of Psalm 22, where it talks about us as the seed. Psalm 22, 30 through 31. It talks about us as the seed that will serve him. It talks about us as being counted as the generation of the Lord, as he wasn't married, didn't have children, but we are his children. And it says that we will come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this, that he hath done all this. Those are the words from the cross. When he said it's finished, he said, done. He didn't say, he didn't speak. He wasn't speaking Greek. He said, it's done. And that's the two last words of that verse there in Psalm twenty-two thirty-one: ki that he did this. So we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. Now, as we said, notice the second purpose of the tower in verse 4. He said, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. They knew that God had commanded them to show out, go out and scatter across the face of the earth. So this tower was like a gathering point to keep them all together. It was a sign of their fame. It was a monument to their achievements. It was a security for them. It was a rallying point for their independence from God. All those who are independent from God meet here. They felt the glory of this tower. They felt they were, and it was, it was a great thing. And, um, well, Frank, you know, the Eiffel Tower, you know, that's a great thing. <laughs> if you don't think the Eiffel Tower is a great thing, put yourself in the boots, don't put yourself in the boots of the Nazis. During World War II, he had a great idea. Here's all this metal we need for railroads and this, this dumb thing going up the sky. Why don't we just take that down? They would have had the whole country. They quickly got rid of that idea because it's a tremendous symbol for the French people, for their achievement. Yeah, the Eiffel Tower. Okay. Now, what was driving these people in Genesis 11? First of all, what was driving them was what is described in Ephesians 4.18 as a darkened understanding, having the understanding darkened. They had a darkened understanding, Ephesians 4.18. They had a darkened understanding. Instead of trusting in God, that's an enlightened understanding, 
They were leaning to their own understanding, which is darkened. And that's what we're warned not to do in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto their own understanding. They were leaning to their own understanding, their darkened understanding. And so what they were doing, though, seemed they were very sincere. You cannot criticize them for not being sincere. They were very sincere and they were very enthusiastic. But sincerity and enthusiastic with a darkened understanding is a bad mix. So that's why it warns in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So Babel became the name of pride, later Babylon. It shows this unity of man's rebellion against God. And so then it says in verse 5 that the Lord came down to see. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men have builded. So here we see God's examining what they did. And he sees not only what they were doing, but he sees what they were thinking. And so that's important because man thinks, you know, if I close my eyes, God can't see me. You know, (laughs) he can hide from God. But God says in Jeremiah 23, 23, 24, he says, am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Did not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? So he's saying, you know, you have to find a different place other than heaven and earth if you want to hide from God. All right, so then he he does the examination. And then notice in verse 6, he comes to the conclusion. He says, again, he uses the same word that was used in the beginning. Verse 1, he said, behold, the people is echad. They're one. And they all have one language, one lip, one purpose, one intention. They're all on board. And they are beginning to do, beginning to do, and nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So what God saw is that they were heading right down the road and in danger of passing the point of no return, of calling down the judgment of God on themselves. So God says, that nothing shall be restrained. In other words, there's no self-restraint. Uh, in other words, of course, he could restrain them, but he was saying there's no restraint within them for what they want to do. So he says, so he, he stops them. He stops them. Why? To give them a space to come to themselves, as it says about the prodigal son. To give them a space to repent, as it says about the woman in Revelation. Because so he says, this they are beginning to do. It's just the beginning. And so God saw where they were heading, and he stopped them at the beginning, at the very beginning. That's a great mercy of God. That's a great mercy of God. Remember when, when uh, Abimelech had taken uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, into his harem, and he was beginning, and, and God says, I, even I, have withheld thee from sinning against me. And he never touched her. So that was God's restraining by the mercy of God. And he acknowledged that. Abimelech acknowledged that also and said to Sarah, Sarah, Abraham is a covering for your eyes. You only got eyes for him. That's what he was saying. All right, so, but we see this pattern in history. You know, the Nazis are killing Jewish people and God stops the Nazis through confusion. On D-Day, a cloud cover, a storm, which was very frustrating for the people trying to invade. But it made Hitler convinced that Normandy was only a decoy and that for sure the invasion was going to happen in Calais to the north. 
And, and so therefore he moves his panzer divisions up there. So God restrained through confusion. And what happened? The state of Israel was born. So God saw this beginning, and based on this beginning, he decides to stop it. And that's very important for us to take to heart, because sometimes we have plans, and we want to begin down a course, and it all gets stopped, and what do we do? We get frustrated. We get frustrated. But that's the time to be thanking God, to thanking God, because he sees what's going to happen that we can't see, and he stops it. Now, the difference is that they weren't thanking God. They were just frustrated and confused. And so what does he say in verses 7 through 9? He says, I'm going to go and confuse them. And so he uses the same words. He said, there's an immediacy to this, and it's very important. So he says, so God says, go to, let us, go down. And when God says, go to, let us, then God has the last, go to, let us, you know. (laughs) But he, he confused their language. And he took away from their minds the associations uh, between the words and the objects and the ideas and so forth and gave them different ones. And then they were scattered. That's what Mary said there in Luke 151. She said, he has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. So what's the lesson for us to see in this account of the Tower of Babel? First, the account of the Tower of Babel describes the world we live in. This is our world. And there is in this world a course to unite men under the achievements of man, under the celebration of what man does without God. And what is the end of this world? Exactly what it was here for these people. It will be frustration, confusion, and lives of no worth. Wasted effort of lives on earth. Wasted effort. Just like the little poem goes, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Well, they weren't doing anything for Christ. They weren't doing anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't doing anything from God. And so all worthless. And as a matter of fact, you can say that if you want a description of those in hell today, you would say they are, number one, frustrated frustrated of not being able to have been successful to rise in their life of independence from God. And then you would say that there's confusion, confusion, confusion in hell because they don't know how they ended up there. It's just so unclear to them. Everything is just confusion. And then as they look back over their lives, it's a life of no value. Now, it's an absolute unnecessary catastrophe. It's an unnecessary disaster for anyone to end in hell. Because when we go and we step back from this passage, we could say, what was the center of their gravity? In other words, where were they gravitating toward? What was their focus? Their center of gravity was outward. It was all about what they achieved, their achievements of man. That was the center of their gravity. And in contrast to Noah, and you'd say, what was the center of Noah's gravity? The center of Noah's gravity was inward, God in him. And so the center of his gravity was a worship of God. The center of his gravity was a life of sacrifice, a life of obedience unto God. Now, this is setting the stage as we're going to come right now into chapter 12 here, 
with the calling of Abraham. And what we're going to find with Abraham is that now that we've set the stage for where the world was, Abraham was completely different. Abraham had a completely different direction from the world. And that's the reason why we have to look at chapter 11 to understand why Abraham dwelt in tents. Because whereas in chapter 11, the idea is permanency, these people want permanency on earth, a strong tower that's unmovable, that reaches up and so forth. So Abraham, by contrast, said, I want nothing to do with it. I'll have nothing to do with that direction, nothing to do with that philosophy of life. I want God. And if this world has evicted God, then I want out of this world. And I want to go where God is. And so that's the backdrop, and that's why it's so important that we see this. It's not so hard for us to see the direction of Genesis 11, because that's the world we live in. But it's very important as we see that, because we don't also want to be like Abraham, and we want to say we want nothing to do with this world. We don't want to love this world. We don't want to be a part of this world. So there's nothing to do with it. We want God. And so, therefore, we want to be followers of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being the God of Abraham. And thank you, Lord, that even though we're in the world, you've not taken us out of the world, but you've called us to yourself in the world and asked us to stand and given us the strength to stand against this world and its direction. And so help us, Lord, to have our understanding that is molded by you, by your word, by the scriptures, so that we can say no to our own darkened understanding and lean not to that, but to trust in you with all of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dad, today you spoke about how God views pride. To summarize for our listeners today, why is pride so dangerous? You know, we finished up here today by quoting the prayer of Mary. Mary was a great person. She's a model for us. She's a guide. I know that we so uh, react against the concept of the immaculate conception in the sense that uh, the claims that Mary was sinless, and those are wrong. Mary was a sinner just like all of us. That's why she said she rejoiced in God, her Savior. She needed a Savior because she needed a Savior from sin. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, Mary is a wonderful person, and what she taught us here is something that we very much need to take heart when she said in her great prayer in Luke 151 that God had showed strength with his arm. He had scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. What Mary is teaching us here and what the Bible is teaching us is that pride is a disease of the heart. That's why she says he had scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Pride is a deep, deep, terrible disease that starts in the heart. That's why when Satan was uh, being indicted by God in Isaiah 14, 13, as we studied today, that's why God says, for thou hast said in thine heart, 
I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. In other words, where did all this begin with Satan? In his heart. Where does pride want to set itself down like a deep-set weed? It wants to root itself in our heart. So therefore, we need to examine our heart. We need to make sure, as the Bible says, that we are not kissing our hand. In other words, kissing the hand is symbolic of saying, what a great hand I have. Look what my hand has gotten for me. By my hand, I have gotten all of this wealth. By my hand, I have built this reputation. By my hand, I have built this career. And God says, God looks at that and he says, I'll scatter, scatter that because God hates pride because pride is the root sin. If you were to interview everybody in hell today and you were to find out why are they there in hell today, in hell today, there is one reason, P-R-I-D-E, pride. Pride is the disease that sends a person to hell because pride says, I believe that my life is good enough to stand before God and I am willing to take responsibility for all of my actions that I have done here on earth. That is pride. And pride will cast a person into hell because pride just shrinks away from the thought of someone dying for my sins. Oh, never. I don't need anybody to die for my sins because my sins are not that bad because I'm a really good person. That's pride. Pride is a disease of the heart. And as Mary taught us, that God will scatter the proud in the imagination of their hearts. The ultimate scattering is a lostness to be perishing in a darkness of being cast into a hell of being forgotten a hell of darkness. That's the ultimate scattering. God doesn't want to do that. But man has to deal with the pride because man looks on himself and he says, I'm not so bad. I'm not as good as some, but I'm not as bad as others. I'm sort of right in the middle. I'm just a really good average Joe. And that's good enough. And God says, no. Why? Because because it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it makes this statement. It says, the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So God is focused on the heart. We look on the outward and we said, pretty good, pretty good, not bad, not bad. But God looks very much deeper on the heart and he says, terrible, terrible, wicked, desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. He's looking on, why is he saying that? Why is there this disagreement? Why is it that man says, not bad. And why is that God said, couldn't be worse? Because there's a difference on where the focus is. Man looks on the outward. Man holds up a mirror, sees the outward, says, not bad. God looks, says, God doesn't do that. God looks straight to the heart and says, oh, darkness, wickedness, pride. It must be dealt with. And the medicine that we need is to is to repent, to say, it's disgusting what I see in myself. I have to turn to God. Oh, God, create in me a new spirit. Create in me a new heart. Take the old heart of flesh out of me. Take the stony heart of flesh out of me and put within me the heart that will love God, the heart will turn to God. Create in me. That's what has to happen. And when a person turns to God that way and says, oh, God, be merciful to me, a lost sinner, then God says, all right, now I'll do my 
I work out with the old heart, in with the new heart. God says, I will work in you both to will and to do of my good pleasure. I will change you from the inside. You'll be, you'll be changed from the inside out, not trying to change from the outside in. You see, because God is a God who sees us, we can't hide from him. In Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24, it says, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? God sees, we can't shut the door. And, cl- and shut God out. We can't close our eyes and blind ourselves to God. God sees us all the time. And when he looks on us, he says, I love you. I see you and I love you. I see the worst in you and I love you. That's the best friend who sees the worst of us, who knows the worst of us and loves us all the same. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I see you. I love you. I see you in your desperation. I see you in your need, and I will fix that. You need someone to die for your sins, to pay the price you cannot pay. You need someone to wipe your slate clean. And God says, only I can do that. And I can only do that if I become a man, which he did, the Lord Jesus Christ. If I go to the cross, which he did, and die for your sins. And that's the great invitation that he extends now to us. Receive him as Lord and Savior. Thank you for joining us today. Now, do you have a Jewish friend or know of a Jewish person that needs to be reached with the gospel? Would you like to give them a free gospel gift or have one sent to them, a Jewish evangelism gift that's free from Israel Restoration Ministries and Tom Cantor? Now, you can contact us directly by phone today, and we can help you to get that gospel gift into their hands or get it into yours to give to them. Call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 3051. That's 247 3051. We can help you to fulfill God's command to go to his lost nation of Jewish people first. And many of us have a Jewish friend, a doctor, lawyer, businessman, neighbor, someone we know that needs to be reached with the gospel. We want to help you to do that. You can also go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Fill out our online form, have that free gift sent to you or to them, or call us 1 800 247 3051.